0: This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Brian a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330, Equal Housing Lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages William McRae presented, answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word radio. In our morning sessions, we've been studying together a God who is God and uh, trying to sharpen our focus upon the nature of our God so that we can come to know Him better so that we can come to love him more, and so that we will come to serve him with greater commitment and uh, and appreciation. There is a story that is an Eastern fable that tells of a lady who one day was walking down a a main street carrying in one hand a blazing torch and in another hand a basin of water. And according to this fable... A friend stopped this lady and asked her whatever she intended to do with this blazing torch in the basin of water. And the lady turned to the person and said, well, with this torch, I intend to burn up all the glories of heaven. And with this basin of water, I want to extinguish all of the fires of hell. When asked why, she responded by saying, so that men and women will come to love God Just because of who he is. And that really is, friend, our highest obligation in life, isn't it? It's to love God. The young lawyer turns to Jesus and says, of all of the laws that we have in our Judaistic system, from your perspective, which is the greatest? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. It is the highest obligation that you and I have on earth. It's to love God. It's the greatest privilege that we have on earth. To love God. So often, however, don't you find it true? We're inclined to love God because of what he does for us. We're inclined to love him because he's so good to us because of the things that he does. We're sort of like spoiled brats that way. Um, You don't have any in your home, but I've come across some children that uh, you know, love their parents to death when their parents do something nice for them. But when their parents don't do something particularly nice, then they're spiteful and angry and bitter against their parents. Sometimes we're that way with God. As long as God treats us well, as long as God's handing out, As long as God's doing good things for us, it's easy to love him. But when the chastening comes, when the windows are closed, when the answer to prayer is not forthcoming, then sometimes it's hard to love God. Our conditioning, it seems to me, is to love God because of what he does for us. And that kind of love ebbs and flows. It's on and it's off. It's hot and it's cold. It's big and it's small. It's it's sort of reactive, depending upon how good God is to us. We love him back. To love him proactively is to love him simply because of who he is. And that kind of love is consistent. That kind of love isn't up and down and on and off. It's a consistent kind of devotion and appreciation to him. And so what we want to learn to do as we're studying together in these mornings about our God is to come to appreciate the kind of God he is so that more and more we will come to love him simply because of the kind of God he is. Now, this morning, I want to turn to you to a, 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 a little passage in the Old Testament that's going to put the spotlight sharply in focus upon one characteristic of God that hopefully will help us to love him more, simply because that's the kind of God he is. The passage is in the book of Psalms, and it's Psalm 117. Turn in your Bible, if you will, please, then to Psalm 117. And as soon as you see it, you're going to breathe a great sigh of relief. It's not Psalm 119 that we're going to study this morning. It's Psalm 117. It's the shortest of all the Psalms. Isn't that a breath of fresh air for us? Well, you're going to discover that there's all kinds of material in this Psalm. Two simple verses just loaded with truths and material for us. Because it's so short... Some people have thought Psalm 117 is really a part of Psalm 116. Others have even suggested perhaps it's a beginning or introduction to Psalm 118. Some have suggested because it's so short that it's really only part of a psalm. And somewhere along the line, the rest of the psalm was lost to us. And because it's so short, many people simply ignore it. Because it seems to be so simple on its surface. And none of those explanations are adequate for this marvelous, marvelous psalm. Psalm 117 falls into the category, uh, by those who study the psalms, of being called a psalm of descriptive praise. It's a psalm of descriptive praise. And every such psalm, and there are a number of them in the book of Psalms, every such psalm has three elements in it. And this psalm has those three elements in, them, in it so that we know it's a complete psalm. It's not part of a psalm. It's a complete psalm. Every such psalm begins with a call to praise. And then there follows the cause for praise. And then finally, there's a renewed call to praise. And you're going to see as we go through this psalm that all three of those elements are here. It begins in verse 1 with a call to praise. The verse reads... Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. Now, I need to tell you, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and so one of the words or two of the words may be slightly different from yours, uh, but uh, essentially, I think we will be together, regardless of the translation that we're using. This is a verse, then, that calls upon us to praise the Lord. Now, I want you to look at the verse carefully. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, who is this this addressed to? And we're a little surprised because this call to praise is addressed to Gentiles. It's addressed to us. It says, praise the Lord all nations. Laud him all peoples. It's the only psalm in the entire Psalter that's addressed to Gentiles like you and me. We're going to look in the psalm then. For a message that especially addresses Gentiles because it's calling upon us to praise him the second thing you want to note from this call is what these Gentiles are called to do they are called to praise the Lord now you know from our study already together this week that praise is the response of the human heart to the character of God it's a response of the human heart to the nature of God And so somewhere in this psalm, then, we're going to expect to find something about the nature of God. And we're going to find something about the character of God, an attribute of God. This psalm doesn't talk about his works. It doesn't talk about him taking them through the Red Sea. It doesn't talk about him providing manna. It doesn't talk about him delivering from the enemies. It talks about his nature. It talks about his character. Thanksgiving is the response of the human heart to the goodnesses of God. Praise is the response of the human heart to the character of God, to the nature of God. And so this psalm is going to talk about God's character. It's going to talk about his nature. There's something about the kind of God that he is that Gentiles ought to praise him. Now, the third thing you need to note about this call is who it is these Gentiles are to praise. It says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him all peoples. Notice how the word Lord is printed in your English Bible. Have you noted that? How's it printed in your Bible? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's not always printed that way in our Bibles, you know. Sometimes it is. And when it's printed with four capitals, that's the editor's way of telling us that in the Hebrew Bible, it's the name Jehovah. Jehovah. It's the name Yahweh. It's the name, the personal name for Israel's God. It's the name that uh, focuses upon him as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. You see, an Israelite in the days of the Old Testament considered the name Yahweh sacred. So sacred they would never pronounce it. And if they were reading through the Hebrew Old Testament and they came upon the word um, Yahweh, rather than pronouncing it, they would substitute for it, Adni, which is Lord. So when the English editors came and translated the Bible and printed it in English to us, they never printed the word Jehovah. You never find it in your English Bible. And it's hundreds of times in the Old Testament. But it's never found once in the English Bible. In its place, every time is the way an Israelite would have read it if he was reading from the Old Testament. It's always Lord but it's always printed in the four capital letters in order to tell the English reader, just a minute, you're going to say, Lord, you're reading, Lord, but you need to understand that originally in the Hebrew Bible, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, it's the name for Israel's God, it's the name for Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And, says verse 1, you Gentiles are to praise Our God, Jehovah, our covenant-making, our covenant-keeping God. Well, you see, that raises a problem, doesn't it? The question is, why should we praise Jehovah? Why should Gentiles praise Israel's personal covenant-making, covenant-keeping God? Why should we do that? Well, that brings us to the second part of the psalm and the very heart of the psalm. The first part of verse 2 then gives us the cause for praise. It begins with the word for or because. And this is, uh, this is the reason then why we should praise Israel's God. It is because his loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Why should we praise Yahweh? The answer is because Yahweh is a God of loving kindness. That's the attribute of God we want to study together this morning. That is the characteristic of God that we want to begin to appreciate in a whole new dimension, I hope, as we work it together this morning. Let me first of all tell you what the Hebrew word is here. Because it's one of the most precious and one of the most significant words in the Old Testament. It's the word hesed, spelled H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. Normally, in our Bibles, especially in the authorized text, it's translated mercy. It's the word, for example, that occurs in Psalm 89. I will sing of the hesed of the Lord forever. Or uh, it's the word that occurs in Psalm 103. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his hesed toward them that love him. And oftentimes, when you come across the word mercy in the Old Testament, it's this word, Hesed, that's at the heart of it. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, from which I'm reading, it's translated the loving kindness of God. And that's helpful. Because built into the idea of Hesed is the idea of being loving. I think most commentators would suggest that there's another dimension to the idea of chesed that's not really caught in the word loving kindness. And it's the idea of being loyal. There's a loyalty that's built into it. And so I'm going to take the liberty this morning of suggesting to you that the best translation for this word hesed that we could come across in our vernacular today is the idea of being lovingly loyal. Being lovingly loyal to a covenant commitment. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God Yahweh is. He is God who is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. Now, let me see if I can prove that to you, because uh, for the way we're going to apply this psalm, it's very important for you to, uh, to buy into the fact that the Hesed of God is his loving kindness to covenant promises that he makes. Let me see if I can demonstrate to you that that really is the heart of the meaning. For example, the root word from which Hesed comes is exactly the same word from which the word stork comes. You know, the bird stork, you've heard of the stork. Question, why is it that storks deliver babies? I mean, why don't pelicans? We've got some nice birds out here, blue herons. Have you seen those blue herons out here in the pond? Why don't blue herons deliver babies? Why do storks? Why have storks been associated with maternity? with motherhood, with babies? Well, it's because of the distinctive characteristic of a stork. Among all the birds in the animal kingdom, the stork is outstanding for its loyalty to its young. As a matter of fact, in Job 39, God contrasts the stork with the ostrich. He says the ostrich lays its eggs on the shores and abandons its eggs, and they can survive or be gone or whatever. Not the stork. The stork finds a place to lay its eggs up high and protects it and broods over the eggs. And when the eggs hatch, care for the young. The outstanding characteristic for a stork is that it loves loyally babes. That it brings into the world. And that's why a stork has been associated with maternity. There's a, there's a loving loyalty. An instinctive maternal instinct. A loving loyalty to that which, which a mother begets. That's Hesed, friend. That's what God is like. He is Hesed. He is lovingly loyal to those that he begets. It's a marvelous picture. Another reason why I'm inclined to think this is the idea is because the parallelism in our second verse, in some of our translations says, uh, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The literal translation of that word truth is the faithfulness of the Lord. So the hesed of the Lord is very close to the faithfulness of the Lord. Not exactly synonymous, but very, very similar to the faithfulness of the Lord. Do you know what the difference is? Sometimes people can be faithful to promises, reluctantly, with a grudge. Hesed has no grudge, has no reluctance. God is faithful. He's, He's more than that. He is lovingly faithful. He is lovingly loyal to every covenant commitment that he makes. And just the fact that hesed is used in in parallelism with the faithfulness of the Lord seems to me to emphasize the kind of character that's involved here. It's the idea of being loyally, lovingly loyal to a promise, to a covenant commitment that's made. Now, my third line of argument to uh, support my uh, definition and, and explanation is the way hesed is used in the Bible. And I would like to encourage you sometime, if you're a Bible student, to do some study in this area. There are marvelous illustrations of how it's used. Let me give you just one. You remember when uh, David and Jonathan became such good friends? They made a covenant together, right? Got it? They made a covenant. They made a commitment to each other. And David's commitment to Jonathan was that when uh, Jonathan and his father Saul died... And David became king, that David would look after Jonathan's family, and he would care for the household of Saul. That was his covenant commitment. And you remember how the story developed. Saul died, and Jonathan died, and David became king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he finds one of the children of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, a lame boy. And he brings Mephibosheth into the family, just as one of his sons, and treats him like royalty. And in the midst of all of this, he sends a message out throughout all of the land. And the message that he sends out throughout all of the land, listen to it, is this. Is there yet any of the household of Saul that I may show the hesed of God unto them? He uses this very word. And I think what David is saying is, I've made a commitment to Jonathan. I've made a commitment about the household of Saul. Now I'm ready to be loyal to that commitment. No, not just loyal. Lovingly loyal. Not reluctantly loyal. It's not that I have to do it. It's that I lovingly want to move out and I want to be lovingly loyal, lovingly faithful to that covenant commitment. That's Hesed, friend. It's one of the most marvelous words in the Old Testament. It's one of the most beautiful attributes of God. He is a God of Hesed. He is a God who is lovingly loyal to the covenant commitments that he makes. Now, come back to Psalm 117. Notice again how that first line of verse 2 reads. It says, for his loving kindness is great toward us. In the footnote of my Bible, instead of great, it says "prevail." and that's literally what the text says his loving kindness prevails over us now you know the idea of prevailing don't you it means to win let me give you an illustration in the bible when the children of israel have come out of egypt when they're on their way to the promised land the amalekites attack and you know what happens moses sends joshua down in the plains to fight the amalekites and moses goes up into the top of the mountain to pray And he's an elderly man, and he lifts up his hands, and he starts to pray. And the Bible tells us that when his hands are uplifted, and he's praying, Israel prevailed. But then his arms got tired, and they started to sag. And when his arms were down, it says, then the Amalekites prevailed. So along come two good friends, and Aaron takes this arm, and her takes this arm, and the two of them hold up the arms of Moses as he prays, and it says, Israel prevailed. Now, that's the kind of word that's used here. You see, what, what, what the author is saying is that God's hesed prevailed. It overcame us. It, it won over us. And that's starting to add some element of confusion to the psalm, isn't it? If you really want to be confused... Notice who it is that it prevailed over. Who's the us in Psalm 117? It's the Jews. This is a Psalm of David. And David is praying. And he is referring to him and to his Jewish people. Now, let me put it together for you. Because it becomes very confusing when you look at it carefully. What David is saying, as a spokesperson for Israel, is that you Gentiles ought to praise our covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And the reason why you ought to do it is because his loyal love to his covenant commitments has prevailed over us. It overcame us. It defeats us. It wins over us. Well, you scratch your head and you say, I don't understand, David. What, What on earth are you meaning by that? Well, of course, it all of a sudden comes into light when you realize that David is speaking against the backdrop of a covenant commitment that God made to David. And so let me ask you to turn in your Bible back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And let me point out the covenant that God made with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is where he makes a promise. This is where he makes a commitment to him. 2 Samuel chapter 7 And uh, in my Bible, right at the beginning of verse 8, there's this heading which says, God's covenant with David. This is God's promise to David. And let me show you how it develops. Verse 8 says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord God of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should uh, be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you Wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now notice this. And I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them. This is a promise relating to the land of Israel. That they may live in their own place. And not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house, that is, uh, uh, an offspring, uh, a, a generation to follow. When your days are complete, that is, when you have died, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Notice, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now, let me stop there before I read on. What he is saying, friend, as I understand it, is that he's promising that David is going to have an offspring. And through David's offspring, there is going to be a line of kings. And that line of kings will rule over Israel. And they will bring solidarity and prosperity to the land and establish a kingdom. And to be the part of the beginning of an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. That's going to be a universal kingdom. Listen. That's going to include all of the nations of the world, us Gentiles as well. That's all part of the plan for that eternal forever kingdom. Now notice how verse 14 continues. It says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And I want to suggest to you that that's really the story of the next thousand years of the Old Testament. From David right on down through the rest of the Old Testament, a thousand years of history, there are the descendants of David. They sit on the throne of Israel, they rule and reign, some of them better than others, some of them worse than others, but iniquity and failure and sin prevails. And you know that's the story of of, uh, kings in Chronicles, the descendants of David and their weaknesses and their iniquities and their failures. Says God to David, when they do that, I'm going to chasten them. And I'll bring in the Assyrians and I'll bring in the Babylonians and I'll bring in the Egyptians and I will use the Gentile nations around to chasten them. They will be my rod of chastening. There will be discipline that will happen. And that's the history of Israel for a thousand years, right down through the period of time. But notice how verse 15 now begins. But my hesed shall not depart from him. My loving kindness, my loyal love to my covenant commitments will not depart from him. See what that's saying, friend. Let me see if I can put it together very simply. What that's saying is, God made a promise to David that involved the establishment of a kingdom that would be a forever kingdom that would include all the nations of the earth, a universal kingdom. In spite of all of the failures of David's descendants... God says, I'm going to chasten them, but I will not back off on my covenant commitment. I'll be lovingly loyal to it. And for a thousand years, there's failure, failure, failure. The ultimate failure, of course, is when the nation stood before Pilate and said, away with him, away with him. We'll not have him to reign over us. That is the ultimate failure of David's descendants. And they crucified the king of glory. But God said to David, I will not let my loyal love to my covenant commitments depart. I will be faithfully loyal to that covenant commitment. Three days later, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, took him home to heaven, established him upon the throne. And Gentiles, like you and me become grafted into the vine and become the sharers in all of the promises of the covenants that God had made through the Old Testament so that today we Gentiles are co-heirs. We Gentiles share with the Jewish people in all of the promised blessings that God promised down through those Old Testament covenants. You see, I think what he is saying is that the Hesed of God promised in Psalm 117 ultimately is realized through Jesus Christ. And through our Lord, because God stayed lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments to God, to David, through that loving loyalty, he ultimately raised up Jesus Christ and through him has brought universal, incredible blessing to the Gentile nations. There's a sense in which this psalm is fulfilled, friends, in our Gentile place of blessing among the people of God today. I say, Bill, that sure seems like it's stretching it. Is that really the message of it? Do you need one last line of evidence to support it? Then let me give it to you by showing you the one quotation of Psalm 117 in the New Testament. Turn over to the book of Romans, please. And in Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 117. It is the only time it's quoted in the New Testament. And this is exactly how it's interpreted and how it's quoted. So, uh, Romans chapter 15. Now, notice what it says in verse 7. By the way, the background against the problem in the book of Romans was the uh, the, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And uh, there was a great deal of conflict and a great deal of animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the things that Paul is doing as he writes this epistle is he's trying to establish some common ground so that the Jews and Gentiles will live together in happy harmony in the local church in Rome. By the way, that is precisely what is meant by the recurring phrase, one another. Starts in chapter 12 and through chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, the one another occurs over and over and over again. And when he's talking about caring for one another, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, he's talking about the June Gentile relationship. Now, when he comes to chapter 15, verse six, notice what he says, wherefore, accept one another. Now he is saying, you Jews, accept the Gentiles, you Gentiles, accept the Jews, Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us, Jews and Gentiles, to the glory of God. Verse 8, Christ accepted the Jews. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision that is to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The reason why Christ accepted the Jewish people who came to him by faith was to prove the promises of God, to prove that God was true. Now verse 9. He also accepted Gentiles. And he became a servant to the Gentiles to glorify God for his hesed. There's the word. For his Hesed, for his mercy. He accepted the Gentiles to glorify God for his Hesed, for his mercy, as it is written. And now there are three or four quotations. Come down to verse 11. There it is Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples praise him. Psalm 117 is quoted in Romans chapter 15 as the proof text that Jesus Christ has accepted the Gentiles. And he accepted the Gentiles to prove that God is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. To the great covenant commitments that he made to David in the Davidic covenant. Now that's Psalm 117. And the message as I see it all put together is simply this: Then you Gentiles ought to praise our God, says David, and that is because even though we failed, even though we rebelled, even though there was iniquity, iniquity, iniquity in my my line, yet God's hesed prevailed, it overcame us, it won over us. And he was lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments, bringing Gentiles into the kingdom that is experiencing all of the blessings that were part of the covenant promises down through the Old Testament. And and says, says David to the psalmist, that's why you Gentiles ought to praise God. It's because that's the kind of God he is. He is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. Now, if we were to stop with Psalm 117, we would have enough right there to praise God. I mean, you look around the room, it's crowded with Gentiles. Why? Friend, it's because God made a promise. He made a promise to David. And he has been loyal to that promise. Not because he had to, not grudgingly, not reluctantly. He's been devotedly loyal to that promise. And he's done it in spite of David's failure and the descendants of David over and over for hundreds of years in their failure and failure. In spite of their failure, he was lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. And the chapel here today is nicely filled with Gentiles because God is a God who is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments in spite of the failures of God's people. Wow. Now you see what I can do is I can take that great truth and I can bring it over to the New Testament and I can superimpose it upon all of the promises that are part of the new covenant. And let's do that for our last five or six minutes. You see, you and I have been brought into a covenant relationship with God. And God has made some marvelous covenantal promises to us. What I want you to do is to start thinking of some. Okay, shift into the New Testament Shift into the new covenant. What are some of the covenant commitments that God has made to us in this new covenant? Now you start thinking of them. And then you write over top of them. You superimpose upon them the kind of God he is. In spite of our failures. In spite of our iniquities. In spite of us blowing it and blowing it and blowing it. Listen, this is the kind of God he is. He is a God of hesed. He is a God who is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. He'll do it. In spite of us. In spite of our failures, his hesed prevails over us. See that's that's the message of the psalm. Well, Just for the sake of the tape, if we were in one of the classrooms back at the Bible college or seminary, I wouldn't let you get off nearly as easy because you'd be answering the questions at this point. But for the sake of the tape, let me give a few that are already in your mind, I'm sure. One of the great covenantal promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a marvelous promise that is. In another word, Go ye into all the world. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Listen, friend, I want to tell you this morning, in spite of all of your failures, in spite of all of your ambivalence, in spite of all of your ups and downs and your iniquities, God has made a commitment to you if you're one of his children. And the commitment that he has made to you is that he will never ever ever abandon you. And because of the kind of God he is, he's a God of Hesed. He'll be lovingly loyal to that commitment. And the day is going to stand come when you stand in heaven and you're going to praise him that his hesed prevailed over you. Do you see the analogy? In spite of all your failure, in spite of all your waywardness, his hesed prevailed over you. That's a marvelous covenant promise. That's the kind of God he is. Let me take another one. Marvelous promise in in Philippians 1.6. He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And see, that's a great promise. What he says is that if he begins a work in you, if he saves you, if he draws you to himself and gives you new life, if he makes you a Christian, if he begins a good work in you, he, he, he is going to continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When you're in heaven with him, you can count on him, friend. You're going to blow it. You're going to stumble. You're going to fail him. But he is lovingly loyal to that covenant commitment. And he will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? See, that's the kind of God we have. And the scriptures are full of such promises. He will never allow you to be tested above what you are able. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will never allow you to be tested above what you are able. But will, with the temptation, always provide a way of escape. And see, what he says is, I've made a commitment to you. And I'm a God of Hesed. I am lovingly loyal to my covenant commitments. You can count on it. I'll keep that promise. Not grudgingly, but just like a stork. Because I love you. And I'll be faithful to that commitment. It's a marvelous promise, isn't it? And the scriptures are full of such promises. They're the covenant commitments that he's made to us. He's promised um, to care for us. Casting all your care upon him because he is caring for us. It's a marvelous promise and commitment. He's made a commitment to guide you and to direct you through life. And that's that's a promise that he will keep. In spite of you, he's made the commitment and he will be lovingly loyal to that kind of commitment. Now, you see, if that's the kind of God we have, isn't it appropriate, friend, that the psalm concludes after giving us a call to praise and a cause for praise, it concludes with a renewed call to praise. It's not surprising that the psalmist concludes Psalm 117 by saying, just a minute, Praise the Lord. Just before we pass on, just before we conclude, let me mention once again, praise the Lord. And you know, of course, that in the Hebrew Bible, that's one word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, says the psalmist. We ought to praise the Lord. Why should we praise the Lord? Especially, the psalmist says, why should you Gentiles praise our God? Why? It's because, in spite of us, he's kept his promise. And that's why you Gentiles are in a place of blessing today. That's the kind of God we have, friend. He's a God who is lovingly loyal to his covenant commitments. And our response to that is optimism and encouragement and hope and confidence. But most of all, it's hallelujah. Praise God. I'm praising God because that's the kind of God I have today. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for making yourself known to us. And we've dealt with just one little facet of your character this morning. But what a beautiful, beautiful dimension. That we have got a God who is lovingly loyal to every covenant commitment. Help us, Lord, we pray, to appreciate that. Our confidence is in you. You keep your promises, you're trustworthy. Friends have failed us, and we've failed ourselves. We make promises and we break them. We're thankful, Lord, that you're the kind of God who keeps his covenant commitments. And we love you for that this morning. Help us to so appreciate you in just this one particular dimension that the song of our hearts through this day will be hallelujah. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages by William McRae answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.